It's September 25th, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the geek beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Ross uh, Rasmussen and uh, Joe Kissel from HMouse, and they're here to tell us about the upcoming Pacific New Media iPad Essentials Workshop. Finally, we will explore climate change and how it's affecting the rates of coastal erosion and sea level rise. Have your questions and suggestions ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. Well, National Preparedness Month wraps up next week, but the new month will shift the focus from the environment to the virtual with October-designated National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. It's the 10th anniversary of this national observance, which began in uh, 2004, well before the era of smartphones and Facebook. The University of Hawaii is taking the lead in spreading the word both in Hawaii and across the country. Locally, the UH Information Security team is conducting two workshops next month and publishing a series of articles focused on four main areas of cybersecurity. The workshops will be held on campus and broadcast online to UH students via the Hawaii Interactive Video Service, or HITS. Next Wednesday, the workshop will focus on privacy and security, protecting your personal information, and keeping mobile devices secure. On October 17th, current cyber threats will be covered, as well as ways to prevent cyber crime. Meanwhile, week to week, UH will emphasize security awareness, mobile and wireless computing, education and password strategies, and avoiding identity theft and online fraud. But UH Information Security Officer Jody Ito also serves on the National Cyber Awareness uh, Month Task Force for the Higher Educational Information Security Council and has been compiling and publicizing events at higher education institutions across the country. Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, tension, of course, uh, last month or this this month, uh, um, National Preparedness Month, and and of course uh, cybersecurity. I mean, I think they kind of go hand in hand. For sure, they follow up. But it was interesting on the the preparedness front. Mm-hmm. Twitter just announced that they now have built into their infrastructure more live alerts for emergencies, working with FEMA and emergency organizations and agencies in various regions and states. So just this morning, after I think it was Nicholas on Twitter pointed it out to us, we signed up, for example, for FEMA Region 9 to get alerts on Twitter. And then uh, what uh, was also interesting about that Twitter alert was the fact that uh, they have participating organizations, and of course, there wasn't anything listed in in Hawaii. So we notified the uh, Civil Defense and Department of Emergency Management for them to participate, because Twitter is looking for all the government agencies right. that can, per, you know, perhaps uh, send out alerts. And it's kind of interesting because they they give you can have a special interface to Twitter, and then your 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 tweet will have this sort of alert status to it. And it'll you can uh, direct it to your phones or what have you. Right, right, and it's independent of carrier mm-hmm. and plan, and that's similar to when you can also get a uh, an Amber Alert, for example. So it's an interesting implementation for sure. But yes, next month it'll be cybersecurity. We'll probably talk a bit about that as well. Um, it was interesting to point out that this act, this month has been around for uh, ten years now. Mm-hmm. So you know when they started it, we had only we didn't have a, any clue how hard it would be to secure information, not just apparently from uh, criminal influences, but perhaps sometimes you want to be concerned about privacy and the government as well. 
Next up, uh, the Advanced Technology Solar Telescope will be the largest ground-based solar telescope in the world when it begins operations atop Haleakala in two years. The project hit one of its first construction milestones last week, but it hit that milestone in Spain. Over 7,000 miles away from Maui, the Spanish companies enlisted to build the 600-ton structure announced that they had completed construction. They're still testing to do, however, before it begins its long journey to Hawaii. The Advanced Technology Solar Telescope is a $300 million project funded largely by the National Science Foundation, boosted by more than $146 million in federal stimulus funds in 2010. Uh, Its 4-meter or 13-foot aperture is more than twice that of currently operating solar telescopes. The telescope will be housed in a giant dome about 85 feet in diameter and 87 feet high, Assembled in Spain and set to begin transport by sea in January, the dome is designated to allow the telescope to follow the movement of the sun across the entire sky. The instrument will be the latest and largest national solar observatory and involves collaboration among 22 institutions, including the University of Hawaii, NASA, the University of Chicago, and the New Jersey Institute of Technology. The Advanced Technology Solar Telescope will have unprecedented abilities to view details of the sun, able to provide the sharpest views ever taken of the solar surface. This will further research into cosmic magnetic fields, solar variability, and other characteristics of our sun. Now, of course, uh, there have been quite a bit of uh, activity on Haleakala, primarily for solar observations, mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, it's interesting to see this new facility get built. And uh, if you look at some of the pictures of the dome, it's it's really impressive. And the fact that, you know, it's been built in Spain right. and going to get shipped all the way over here. Wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. I mean, <laughs> that, we, yeah. we always say that astronomy is an international field of study, and most of the stories we cover with UH involve collaborations like that. But physical construction of a giant dome that has to come by sea, I mean, mm-hmm. that'll be an interesting journey to watch. But, uh, yeah, construction is actually also proceeding at Haleakala, the uh, UH is maintaining a website. They just posted a photo yesterday of the concrete slab mm-hmm, that they've got mm-hmm. going up there. They picked Haleakala over 70 other sites, um, and it will be the largest solar telescope until, until China. China. Right. right. <laughs> gets theirs up uh, in a few more years after that. But uh, always like tracking that, and uh, you can look for the Advanced Technology Solar Telescope at the UH site or just Google it. Mm-hmm. Well, next up, the Trans-Pacific Fiber Cable System proposed by New Zealand-based Hawaii Cable took another step closer to reality last week after the $350 million project found a partner for the, for the United States' end of its network. In addition, a New Zealand news site says that the U.S. Defense Department has also expressed interest in participating in the Ocean Crossing Network to the tune of $100 million. Hawaii Cable signed a multi-million dollar turnkey supply an installation contract with TE Subcom, an American submarine cable vendor that will design and lay the trunk line from Australia and New Zealand to Hawaii and the U.S. West Coast. Meanwhile, Stuff.co.nz reported late last month that the U.S. military is looking into installing or piggybacking on a pair of optical fiber links to connect its bases in American Samoa as well as joint defense installations in Australia. Hawaii Cable isn't the only new Trans-Pacific Communications Cable project in the works and likely won't be the last, with the New Zealand government announcing earlier this month a $15 million incentive for companies planning to link New Zealand, Australia, and the U.S. The current main link, the Southern Cross Cable, is expected to be able to meet demand through the year 2020. Hawaii Cable, uh, their 8,600-mile uh, link is expected to be built by 2015. 
So far, no landing sites or partners have been named for the proposed Hawaii leg. Now, you know, we've been following these uh, sort of broadband trans-Pacific cable stories because, uh, you know, a lot of them, well, they used to kind of look at Hawaii as being a landing point, but now a lot of them actually uh, bypass bypass Hawaii. And then the ones that do propose uh, a stopover in Hawaii, it's interesting to see what exactly they do in Hawaii, whether they actually have a cross-connect point where other carriers can connect to them, or are they just uh, stopping, you know, stopping and right. maybe getting a, a power boost you know, to, to continue on. And it's, it's good to see that this project uh, is um, signing up uh, this TE subcom because I think we reported previously about another project called the Pacific Fiber, and, right. and that one seems to have, have died because right. of funding. So um, it's it's interesting that uh, now we previously reported that they got an ISP customer. They've also had another ISP out in New Zealand commit to carrying capacity, but this is the first deal that they've made for a company that would actually physically Start design work, and build right. it, although they would do the design, uh, I think, in New Hampshire before they deploy it. Now, phase one is from... Uh, New Zealand and Australia to Hawaii, mm-hmm. and if that succeeds, they would connect Hawaii to the United States. But it is interesting interesting that all of the maps show them coming through Hawaii, but uh, there's still no actual details as to where or how that will connect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll keep tracking it. Yep. Scientists at the UH School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology will lead a new consortium of research institutions across the country in a broad interdisciplinary research team focused on volcanic hazards and disaster preparedness. The team, including members from five volcano observatories and seven academic institutions, will be supported by a 291 thousand dollar grant from the National Science Foundation. It's the first in a series that is aimed at large scale research projects. The team will be led by Bruce Houghton, a volcanology professor at SOAS, and includes Carl Kim, head of the National Disaster Preparedness Training Center, and Peter McGinnis-Mark, outgoing director of the Hawaii Institute for Geophysics and Planetology. They will work with colleagues at the U.S. Geologic Survey, UC Berkeley, Texas A&M, and Duke universities, among others. By design, none of the team members have worked together previously. Large and long-term volcanic eruptions like those seen at Kilauea on the Big Island or Mount St. Helens show that the effects cross several scientific fields, from geology to meteorology, from engineering to economics. The new research team will focus both on the multitude of data sets involved as well as social and behavioral factors and decision-making during volcanic crises. The hope is to improve the relationship with the country's active volcanoes. Now it was interesting because uh, you know we've been we've been both kind of involved with uh, the National Disaster Preparedness Training Center. And we I was just kinda, had Carl Kim on. Yeah, and I was kind of curious about what the involvement uh, that NDPDC might have with this. Perhaps there's a class coming out as a result <laughs> of it. But actually, what what I was told from uh, uh, the communications uh, person over at SOAS was that it's really the first time that these very somewhat disparate groups right. are actually working together uh, who perhaps wouldn't normally work together. Mm-hmm. So it'd be good to have them uh, interact and maybe have some cross-fertilization uh, in terms of terminology. One might be more scientific. One might be more training-oriented. And you know, if, if there's ways that they can uh, uh, better communicate some of their best practices to each other, you know, maybe there would be some interesting things. Right. As well. and, and as part of a national uh, mo- uh, initiative, the National Science Foundation's Hazards Seas Program, basically, like you said, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, crossing uh, different areas of study that normally don't interact. I mean, they have to 
talk about the decision-making during disasters, and we know them well just waiting for perhaps a tsunami wave to come and how you might have a scientific reading here, the effect on traffic in EVA making a decision there, and all of these things and how they inter interrelate. So I think it's a, a pretty good idea. So uh, And they do note that of natural disasters, the easiest to predict is uh, volcanic eruptions, mm-hmm. yet they often have impacts that are far greater than, you know, the 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 relative size of the actual eruption. They, mm-hmm. they can be much bigger than that. And here's a couple of items that we wanted to uh, share with you on our tech calendar on the Big Island. Monday brings the monthly Tech Pauhana meetup in West Hawaii. The Natural Energy Labs Gateway Center will host a potluck dinner, open networking, and a presentation by the Pacific International Center for Space Exploration Systems, or PISES. RSVPs are uh, recommended, so to contact Nelha, or organizer Rod Hinman, uh, you can visit energyfuturehawaii.org. And next Saturday brings the 10th Annual Clean Energy Fair. The event will be held at Kahala Mall, and it's organized by Hawaiian Electric, the Hawaii Nature Center, and the State Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism. In addition to informative exhibits, games, and contests, the Clean Energy Fair will also feature live music and keiki hula. Again, that's Saturday, October 5th at Kahala Mall. And for more information, you can visit hawaiianelectric.com. And now joining us in the studio is Ross Rasmussen from HMouse, and by phone is Joe Kissel to tell us about the upcoming Pacific New Media class on iPad Essentials. Welcome to the show, Ross and Joe. Good Thanks to for be having here. me. Yeah. So Hi, Joe. let's start with Ross. Uh, Ross, uh, uh, how did this uh, up, you know, this sort of class and Pacific New Media and Joe Kissel get involved with uh, maybe putting on this iPad Essentials workshop? Well, the the idea came through Pacific New Media, mm-hmm. and uh, we had we had uh, we have a long relationship with Joe. H Mouse just loves him, and he has really helped us be on the forefront of technology by coming in by uh, by um, FaceTime mm-hmm. and doing classes for us at our meetings. And so that was like wow. And he came in from Paris, which was like okay. It's just like he's sitting there with us, and he's done it a couple of times. Wow! And so that was sort of the introduction to of, of Joe mm-hmm. to the, the the local group mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And we got Joe on the line. And, and Joe, how did you uh, how did you get hooked up with uh, with the H Mouse guys? Did you just feel sorry for them or something? And, <laughs> no, <laughs> and decided I, to I, you know I, I write books for a living, and I write magazine articles, and that's that's fun. But it's much more interesting and much more fun to interact with actual human beings. Um, when I write something, I don't know if the people I'm writing for understand it, if they like my, if they get my jokes, or if they're confused by uh-huh. things. And so when I can talk to people in, in person or even by video, um, that's, that's way better for me. And I think it's way better for, for the audience, too, because they can ask questions right away, and they can tell me if they, they don't understand something or want, want more information on something. So I've, I've done um, meetings for you know, user groups and Macworld and cruises and different kinds of conferences for a long time. And so uh, a few years ago, when HMouse first contacted me to see if I might like to do a, a video presentation for them, I said, absolutely. I, I happened to be living in Paris at the time, so mm-hmm. uh, we did by video. And now I'm living in California, which is just the next state over. So I figured, <laughs> uh, why not uh, hop across the ocean and, and uh, visit in person? 
Great. Now, um, I, it was fun interacting with you, Joe, on uh, Twitter. And, of course, you know, it's great that although I know HMOS does a lot of events and has a lot of speakers remotely, it's when they can come that I think a lot of magic can happen. Now, October is also the rumored month when uh, there might be a new iPad, but we're all still, still just beginning to scratch the surface of what our current iPads can do. Um, Ross, can I ask you, I mean, what are some of the, the basic concepts or ideas for iPad users or would-be iPad users that you hope this uh, workshop will cover? Well, I hope that people will become more familiar with them because Joe's very good at taking that thing in your hand and, and helping you understand it better and make it a more productive tool for you. So I think that just being with him, and, and, and I, I'm a very experienced user, but just just taking a class with Joe really opens up your eyes and say, oh, yeah, I didn't know it really could do that. So it's a lot of fun. Joe, can you give us a, a little taste of uh, what you're going to cover? Yeah, so uh, in the morning I'll be talking about Mac stuff, and in the afternoon I'll be talking about iPad stuff. So uh, the morning session will we'll start with uh, sort of uh, giving away all of my secrets. So I'm going to tell you uh, how to think like a Mac geek. Um, oh, and, good. <laughs> uh, and hopefully, hopefully that won't put me out of a job. Um, and I'm also going to talk about some security issues. So there, there have been a lot, of, uh, a lot of worries lately about passwords and online privacy and uh, you know backups, and I'm going to talk about some of the some of the big security issues that, that face Mac users. And then in the afternoon, uh, it's it's the iPad, and and so I've divided it into into three talks that sort of go from uh, beginner to advanced. I'm going to take take you from a from a complete beginner to a uh, hardcore propeller head in three hours, <laughs> and uh, at least at least I hope so. And so um, I'm going to start by you know, showing you some of the things that you may not have realized your iPad can do, even though it's been able to do it for years, because Apple Apple loves to play this game of sort of hiding features, <laughs> and it's up mm-hmm. to you to discover right. them. Right. And uh, that's that's fun as a game, but it's not fun if you want to get your work done. So we'll talk about some of those things, and I'll, I'll talk about loads and loads of my favorite apps, some important settings, and most importantly, some techniques that can just help you get your work done that you may not have thought of. So, uh, and I, you know, as I was telling Ross earlier, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the attendees are renting my brain for the day. So I will, I will pack in as much information as I can, and I hope there will be lots of questions and, and lots of interaction. Well, now that we have a, a little bit of your brain, we're going to hear from Ross a little bit about, a, about other events that HMouse is doing. But, Joe, since we do have an internationally acclaimed Mac expert on the line, <laughs> um, you know, Bert and I just uh, talked about upgrading to iOS 7, and uh, I have my new fingerprint sensor, and uh, everybody's waiting for a high-def uh, iPad mini um, what, what are your thoughts about uh, where Apple is going? I mean, do you think that uh, the Mini will become the primary device? And what do you think about the plans, the rumors of a big, gigantic iPad? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I don't have any inside information from Apple. Sure, I'm in the sure. same boat everyone else is. Right. Apple, of course, has notorious security, and they're just very, very secretive. I have some guesses and opinions. Uh, I will say that sooner or later there has to be an iPad mini with a retina display, and I will be first in line to get it. Absolutely. Uh, I love my MacBook Pro with the retina display, and I love my full-size iPad with the retina display, and I love my iPhone with the retina display. And if I had an iPad mini, that would just be marvelous. But now, you know, just yesterday, today, they announced new iMacs, which are, you know, a lot faster, and we know that the new Mac Pro is coming soon. Uh, And I... 
I only have so much money I can spend every year on Apple products. Oh boy! So do I get the new iPhone and the iPad and an iMac, or a, you know, mm, mm-hmm. kind of mind blown? And I'm what I'm expecting, which nobody has really talked about yet, is uh, a, a new high resolution desktop display because you know the new Mac Pro can support 4K resolution on mm. on external displays, but Apple doesn't make one, and I'll bet they will. I'll bet nice. they'll call it a, a Retina display. So. I, you know, if if I magically earned another hundred thousand dollars this year, <laughs> I could easily spend it all on Apple hardware. Um, I and I, so all those things are definitely going to happen. It's what the surprises are going to be that that I don't know. I think they'll do something cool with Apple TV. There might be some sort of wearable product, but. Ah. Yes, we'll just have to wait and see. But see, as you talk, Joe, my wallet starts to hurt more and more. So <laughs> it gets lighter and lighter. Your wallet. So Ross, where can uh, how how can someone attend these 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 great events with Joe? You can go to hmouse.org, mm-hmm. and okay. uh, we have uh, signups. And there's a discount for hmouse members, and you can also go to Pacific New Media's website, uh, pnm at uh, uh, uh Edu. Yep. Excellent. And, and uh, very quickly, you have uh, your annual event also coming on a little later. Yeah. Well, while we had Joe in town, and you know, we love him, so uh, we're going to have uh, our. We've moved our Mactoberfest up to the following Sunday, and so we're going to have Joe live, and uh, we have a whole day or a whole morning of uh, fun time with Joe and uh, some interesting things about uh, uh, people in uh, broadcasting and in journalism about how they use uh, technology to do their jobs. Great. Where's uh, Where's uh, Mactoberfest? going to be? It's going to be at the U of H Art Auditorium. Uh, sounds good. Definitely want to check it out. And uh, I want to thank uh, Ross and Joe for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Joe. gentlemen. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Chip Fletcher and Brad Romine to talk about sea level rise. Is there a growing threat? Where can we see or observe and what might happen in the future? Is there anything we can do about it? We'd, of course, love your questions as part of the conversation as well. So please give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Of course, you can also tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Sandra Barrett, author of Secrets of Your Cells. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about discovering your body's inner intelligence. Sunday morning at 11. Aloha, this is Beth Ann Kozlovich, executive producer of talk shows and host of The Conversation and Town Square. The minute you open your mouth, your gray matter is showing. Do you really know what you're talking about? Can you really listen and learn? You need to exercise your gray matter, and HPR is a perfect example of how you can do it. Don't forget, your early gift to Celebration 2013 helps to support HPR. Make yours now, and thanks. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And uh, joining us today is Chip Fletcher and Brad Romine. Chip is currently chairperson and professor in the Department of Geology 
Geophysics in the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology, or SOAS, at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, and has written extensively, extensively on beach processes and coastal hazards. Brad, meanwhile, is a coastal geologist and coastal management specialist with the University of Hawaii's Sea Grant College Program and the Hawaii State Department of Land and Natural Resources Office of Conservation and Coastal Lands. Brad's role as Sea Grant Extension faculty is to bridge the gap between science and policy to improve coastal zone management in Hawaii. And what is the current message about the state of our coastal regions? We'd love to hear your comments and questions. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Chip and Brad, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Now, Chip, uh, we'll start with you because you've been in this field for uh, a good number of years and have uh, been researching and studying and reporting on the uh, the effects of sea level rise and coastal erosion. Maybe you can give us a, a quick uh, update on, on what's been happening over the past, let's say, 20 years. <laughs> I'll make it easy on you. Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, sea level around, <clears throat> around the world has been rising for over a century. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the rate of sea level rise in Hawaii has been roughly uh, six inches per century. This is not enough for most people to notice, but it is enough apparently to drive a uh, situation of chronic beach erosion that we have in the state. Our research indicates that uh, as much as 70 or an average of 70 percent of the beaches in the state, uh, at least specifically on Kauai, Maui, and Oahu, are um, experiencing chronic erosion. So we are already seeing the impacts of long-term sea level rise. And as a result of global warming and climate change, uh, we now have uh, satellite-derived data for the rate of global sea level rise. Global mean sea level rise is up to about uh, a foot per century. So um, what we've seen in the past has apparently doubled, and the global rate of sea level rise means that we're going to see uh, an increase in the problem of coastal erosion around the world. However, in Hawaii, the century-long rate of sea level rise has not accelerated. So we're sort of in a sweet spot here in the north-central Pacific where um, sea level rise has not accelerated as a result of global warming. How long we can continue to main that and dod- remain there and dodge that bullet mm-hmm. is, is uh, anybody's guess. Now, we recently covered a study that was done, and there's a lot of you know new research about sea level rise and its effect on coastal uh, regions, um, but I certainly want to get to some of those details. But Brad... Um, you know, we talk, uh, I think everybody who lives in Hawaii certainly is sensitive to coastal erosion and those uh, th- those elements from replenishment activities in Waikiki. My dad lives out in Ainahaina, and there's there's a lot of policy debate, for example, about building structures, about planting certain plants to try and hold on to shorelines. And I'm wondering, is it possible, or can you explain how uh, scientists might be able to separate what we're talking about on a global scale uh, with sea level rise or with even subsidence of the islands and such like that, and just bad planning and maybe building too close to the ocean, and that's why we're having coastal erosion. Yeah, there's there's a lot of questions in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if someone might, might say, well, I- are you sure it's sea level rise? It's, or maybe it's just that we're not um, building, we're building too close. We're putting or maybe sea that's seawall, yeah. It, yeah, it, yeah. It's, all, it's not just sea level rise. Um, it, when you look at the islands on an island-wide basis, uh, sea level doesn't appear to be an important factor on an overall, overall basis. Um, when you zoom into one individual beach, there's a lot of factors driving coastal change there. Um, natural sediment variability, how much is sand, is, is sand is coming in and out to of, out of a beach. Um, 
as well as human impacts, you know, building of walls, um, other types of engineering that might block sand transport. So it's it's complicated. And, and then we also live in, um, you know, one of the most dynamic uh, ocean areas in the world. Huge waves coming here every winter, um, every summer on the south shore. So that, that moves a lot of sand around in the seasons as well, as well as over the long term. So a lot of variables in play there. Mm-hmm. So how would you... Uh, begin to help someone think about it on a broader scale when you say when they're only focusing on Waikiki Beach or they're only focusing on a beach on Maui and they they're pretty sure it's because of where that hotel is or where that groin was put out into the ocean. Yeah, that's part of what I I, I do with my job as a Sea Grant Extension agent. Um, I spend most of my day, days down at the uh, Department of Land and Natural Resources, and we deal directly with homeowners um, that are having erosion problems. And um, my role is really to educate them on our understanding of why a beach is changing, and then also present them with the options, you know, of, of how they could deal with with the erosion problem on their beach, a whole range of options there. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Now, now, Chip, you had uh, uh, made a comment just in, in the beginning about how Hawaii is, is a little bit different. We're in a sweet spot. Why is it that we're different from every place else? Well, this is a subject of active research, and... Um, we have some wonderful researchers at uh, the University of Hawaii, specifically associated with uh, the UH Sea Level Center. Uh, Mark Merrifield is there, um, and a number of people who work with him are looking into this question of uh, why is the rate of sea level rise in the western tropical Pacific um, so much higher? It's on, it's on the order of a couple of feet per century there, whereas here in Hawaii, we're on the order of six inches per century but on the west coast of the U.S., in the eastern Pacific, um, there's actually short-term sea level fall. And hmm. the current thinking is that the winds are literally pushing water to the west across the Pacific and that there's been um, an acceleration or uh, predominance of a La Nina-like climate condition known as the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which mm-hmm, has a mm-hmm. positive phase and a negative phase. And the PDO appears to have been in a negative phase for a while, which means that it promotes vigorous and frequent trade winds, which is resulting in all this water being pushed over to the Western Pacific. Now, when the PDO changes phase and goes goes into a positive phase, uh, and if that's going to happen, if the winds are going to uh, sort of slow down, ramp down, and if the water is going to then slosh back across Mm -hmm, the Pacific, mm -hmm. these are all questions that are in all of our minds. Uh, If that happens, um, we would see a rise in sea level around Hawaii. The rate of sea level rise would likely ro- uh, increase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking to Chip Fletcher and Brad, Ro- Brad Romine, uh, geologists mm-hmm. and specialists about sea level rise and coastal erosion in Hawaii and around the world. And if you've got a question for these experts, we welcome your calls at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We're also listening on Twitter. You can tweet Bert at bite marks. Now, Chip, when you talk about this oscillation and that there's some sea level uh, drop, I mean, yeah, drop, uh, because it's a long term, I hear a lot of debate, for example, when even talk, people talk about climate change and they say, well, wait a minute. So do we have a long enough data set to know that this is something that is going to persist and continue in this direction? Or maybe we just wait long enough and it goes the other way? Uh, well, you're bringing up a couple of points. One is, is the current global warming that's been observed the result of a natural process? Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that the answer is no. There's no known natural process, natural climatological process that would uh, predict the warming that we're experiencing today. The warming experiencing in the last century is of such uh, 
high magnitude and of such rapid onset that uh, uh, it would it would it's equivalent to some of the major extinctions that have happened throughout geologic history. Mm-hmm. There is this issue of why has the rate of warming leveled off over the last decade and. Research has looked at a number of possibilities. One is that uh, volcanic activity may have thrown um, uh, aerosols into the upper atmosphere, which are blocking some sunlight. The latest idea, uh, which seems to have a lot of merit, is that the same process I've talked about in the Pacific, the uh, vigorous winds blowing towards the west, have uncovered or unroofed cold water in the eastern Pacific. And that cold water released to the air... um, the temperature uh, is influencing the global temperature. And um, so that, that means there's a connection here between the Pacific decadal oscillation, the winds, the water temperature in the Pacific. And, and it's well known that all of that is sufficient to uh, influence the global temperature of the atmosphere. Now, I, I'm, I'm interested in uh, a couple of things. One is there's a couple of things that contribute to sort of sea level rise. I mean, you talk about the ice caps melting and that contributing to uh, you know, levels of water rising. But they also talk about the expansion of the water because of a warming trend. That's right. What, how, yeah, how does well, that... when you warm anything, it expands and becomes less dense. And the ocean is actually providing us with an enormous service. It is absorbing uh, over 90% of the heat that we've put into the atmosphere by producing greenhouse trapping gases. Uh, over 90% of that heat is, is in the ocean. Um, the benefit is that we're experiencing less global warming than we would otherwise. The detriment is that the ocean is suffering as a result, and the ocean is warming. One of the consequences is uh, that ocean water expands, and this is very roughly about one-third of the amount of sea level rise that's taking place. Mm -hmm. The -hmm. other uh, two-thirds, one-third is due to melting of the Greenland and Antarctic ice caps, and the last remaining third is due to melting of glaciers that are in mountain systems around the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, we're talking to Chip Fletcher and uh, Brad Romine, and we're talking about sea level rise, and uh, they're both experts from UH, and if you have a comment or questions, feel free to give us a call. The number here is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven. Nine four one three six eight nine. We want to welcome Kate from Moiliili to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi, folks. Very interesting. Uh, you know, rather than uh, freaking out because somebody's saying, "Oh, we're all going to go underwater," I mean, it <laughs> just really helps to have somebody that, that explains this very well. And where Hawaii um, lands in this uh, whole. Uh, question of level rise. I have a question as regards to, I watched the Alawai. Uh-huh. And the Alawai to me, like we had uh, the blue moon a, a month or two ago, and the uh, water um, on the Malka Bank seems to be getting higher and, uh, you know, almost going over a second berm. And I'm thinking, okay, we have a hydraulic elevator here that has had the water go over the top of the jack once cost us a lot of money to get that uh, a sleeve put in. What are the chances of it rising more and going over our new sleeve kind of thing, you know, as far as internal uh, water rising? And I'll hang up to just uh, give a listen. Well, thanks, Kate. I appreciate this. It's really fascinating. Thanks, guys. Thank Thank you. you. Brad, I think that's a question just with your name all over it. Sure. Um, well, with the, with the long-term sea level rise that we're experiencing here um, in Hawaii, there's also a lot of short-term variability with um, the PDO that Chip mentioned and the El Nino. 
There's also um, temporary sea level rises on, on the order of weeks or months that come through as we have these eddies, large circulating masses of water come through um, the islands. That can raise sea level by tens of centimeters, um, possibly. So um, on the short term, yeah, it's very possible that they could have some increased flooding temporarily just with um, tides and temporary sea level with mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. atmospheric climate and Chip, long term. Uh, to, to give the listeners a gauge of uh, how much sea level rise is expected to occur, uh, the National Academy of Sciences came out with a report very recently that uh, predicted on the order of one foot of sea level rise by mid-century as a global average and uh, on the order of three feet of sea level rise by the end of the century as a global average. Now, there are predictions that by the end of the century it could be as much as six feet. Um, and uh, the leaked IPCC report, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, the true report will come out on Monday, um, suggests that it's going to be more like uh, two and a half to three feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. And I want to put a plug in here that uh, the University of Hawaii has uh, two scientists that are um, uh, co-authors on the IPCC report, and mm. they'll be holding a press release on Monday morning to talk about and take questions of uh, what the new report contains. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we'll mm-hmm. probably be covering that next week mm-hmm. then. Um, so, Brad, you know, we're hearing feet and inches and centimeters and everything. It's kind of hard for me to translate that, although I can certainly, for our caller, for example, say, boy, that does seem like it's higher than it was when I was a kid, for example. So when you're saying, uh, let's say, a centimeter of sea level rise, when you're talking about a beach or a, an island, what does that translate to in terms of land lost, for example? Um, there's been a number of studies, including one we just did for Hawaii, looking at um, beach changes over large areas and relating that to localized sea level rates. And um, a general conclusion that these studies have, have come to um, is that um, sea level rise, beach erosion, sea level rise are different by about two orders of magnitude. What I'm trying to say is if, if sea level rise comes up by a foot, you could lose um, as much as 100 feet of beach from that. Mm. So when uh, so as an example, like uh, I've been going to Kualoa Beach uh, for for many years, and and uh, there's it's it's very recognizable how each year you go back, there's less and less sand there. Uh, so how how do you is there anything that you can attribute to the fact that there's these orders of magnitude of sea level rise that then you know sort of get translated into beach erosion? Um, yeah, as, as um, sea level comes up. Waves are able to come across the reef um, with more energy, and they're able to attack the beach higher up on, on the beach slope there and remove sand more, more quickly. Um, you mentioned Kualoa Beach Park. Um, we do find some evidence with some ongoing studies that headland beach areas like that mm-hmm. are being attacked and eroded more in Hawaii. Um, but as I mentioned earlier in the program, um, you do have to look at the local factors there. There are a number of, of groins, these rock shore perpendicular structures, um, updrift from there that might be blocking sand. So mm-hmm. it, it is complicated. Well, now, speaking of these differences, uh, Chip, I think one of the other findings of a recent study, perhaps your study, was that uh, even when you're looking at uh, different islands, that, for example, Maui was much more subject to this level of erosion versus Oahu, even though you would imagine, given the great big ocean and the great big islands, that we'd be pretty much the same. How did you account for the differences just between Oahu and Maui? Well, Maui and especially the big island of Hawaii uh, are both subsiding because they're geologically young. And the ability of the Earth's lithosphere, which contains the crust, which is the more common term people might be familiar with, the ability of that layer, the outer layer of Earth, to hold the massive weight of these huge shield volcanoes is exceeded 
um, because of the rapid growth of these volcanoes, again, geologically speaking, they're actually subsiding, uh, bending uh, the Pacific plate. Mm -hmm. So the rate of sea level rise on uh, the Big Island is on the order of three millimeters per year. The rate of sea level rise on Maui is on the order of 2.3 millimeters per year. And on Oahu, it's one and a half millimeters per year. So sea level is rising twice as fast around the Big Island than it is on Oahu. So that's the, the I guess, in layman's terms, sort of the sinking of, of I don't the like the term island. sinking because yeah. <laughs> it implies a boat. Right, but right. But it's, we use subsidence or subsiding. Uh-huh, now, is uh-huh. there a chance that there's any kind of Boeing effect that maybe helps Kauai, for example, well, stay where Well, in fact, at? the Boeing effect helps Oahu. But this, we're talking about the Boeing effect is a, is a long-term, hundreds of thousands of years effect. It's ah. a geologic process. But back to your original question, it's because of the higher rate of sea level rise on Maui and uh, the ability to compare segments of Maui to segments of Oahu and to isolate factors such as human-caused uh, erosion or differences in wave climate and other differences, that what came out in uh, the study that Brad led is that the differences in sea level rise were the, were, um, the primary driver on an island-wide scale. And again, locally, an individual beach can have erosion or accretion based on a number of factors, mm-hmm. not just sea level mm-hmm. rise. Good. I want to I wanna, uh, have uh, us hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Chip Fletcher and ba- Brad Romine about sea level rise and coastal erosion. Are there short-term or even long-term fixes? We'd, of course, love to hear from you as well. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. My name is Marlene Booth from the Academy for Creative Media at the University of Hawaii. You often hear my voice during HPR's pledge drives, and I hope you'll join me for Celebration 2013. The programs on HPR expand my world in all kinds of different directions and help me make connections from one subject area to another. Help support HPR. It's about what matters. Financial news changes by the very minute. Domestic and global markets are crazy. China's not about to move away from buying U.S. treasuries. The European Central Bank wading into the Spanish and Italian government bond market today. The whole debt ceiling debate made us look dysfunctional. We all know that. That's okay, though, because we're here. Marketplace, it's the business show for the rest of us. It's from APM, American Public Media. Weekdays at 6 p.m. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum, and I'm Ryan Ozawa, and uh, we're talking about uh, we're talking with Chip Fletcher and Brad, Brad Romine about uh, sea level rise and uh, how is it affecting not only our coastal erosion but uh, how does it potentially affect the policy making and how can we stem the rising sea levels? Is there anything that we need to do other than move to a higher Floor, you can give us a call at nine four one three six eight nine on Oahu or eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands. Now, right before the break, we were talking about again how uh, different islands have different effects and uh, how uh, you know uh, you can have local things that are affected by what humans do that really are different from the impacts on a global level. So, uh, Brad, uh, let me ask you about. What your role is, I mean, what your view is from the from a policymaking perspective, uh, certainly one small island and uh, one governor and a uh, number of mayors wouldn't necessarily be able to do anything to change a 
global uh, a global environmental change, but what are some of the things that you really want to see either here or elsewhere become part of policy to be prepared for sea level rise? Um, in, in preparing for sea level rise, we really are preparing for the things that already threaten us. Um, as Chip mentioned, 70% of our beaches are eroding um, from studies over the past century. So, And um, we're already prone to flooding from storms and high waves here. Um, those are things we already need to be planning for. There are already major hazards here, and they're only going to increase in mm-hmm. um, over coming decades. So it, it makes sense. Just just plan for the things we already face and, and improve our planning for those um, to account for sea level rise. You know, I've got a question on uh, Twitter uh, from uh, John Holland, and he asks, uh, which I think is pertinent to what we're talking about here, is are there any significant secondary problems or chain reactions that, may, that might result from sea level rise? And I, I think I've, saw, I've seen some of your presentations and talks about how, of course, coastal erosion is one element of it, but then how does, how does that affect, like, the water table? Uh, I probably should divert that to Chip. Oh, okay, sure. okay. That. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was um, Chip that I yeah. saw. Yeah, this is a fascinating process. It's called groundwater inundation, and it turns out that the water table in the coastal zone, for instance, under Kaka'ako or Honolulu or Kailua, um, we, can, we can see the water table in wells go up and down with the tides. We can even see these water, the water table go up and down with sets of waves that come in. Mm-hmm. So obviously the water table is intimately connected to the ocean. And as the ocean rises, <clears throat> as the ocean rises due to climate change, the water table is going to rise. And low-lying land areas are vulnerable to the water table flooding them. And the definition of a wetland is where the water table is exposed on the surface mm-hmm. of the earth. So we're going to be making urban wetlands. And we've already seen this happen in the area of Kaka'ako, which is the industrial area, Mauka, of the airport. That area uh, was built on fill that subsided. And um, uh, with the sea level that we've seen over the last century, it would get flooded on a regular basis by water coming up the storm drain system and flooding into the streets. Mapunapuna. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Sorry, Mapunapuna. Although I, I did have Kaka'ako on my mind. My though. bad, my bad. It no, was Mapunapuna. Well, and, and in fact, there are places in Waikiki and Kaka'ako where there are little pools of salt water that come up out of the uh, storm drain system. Um, that's slightly different than what I'm referring to, um, though, which is the water table actually breaking out through the land mm-hmm, surface mm-hmm. Uh, and might be occurring today in the form of uh, one reason why we have so many potholes and why our roads need repairing so quickly. It's the reason for that is because the water table is sort of eroding the, the bottom of the roads. So is this, okay, so Mapuna Puna, and I've seen situations, I don't know if it's, uh, it's, if it's groundwater or just the fact that they got bad plumbing in uh, Kaka'ako, <laughs> but, you know, there, there might be a little bit of a drizzle and boom, you see water sort of pooling in, in Kaka'ako. Fundamentally, it's a drainage problem. And as, as sea level rises, the drainage problem is going to grow worse and worse. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it, you know, a rainfall on a very flat area that's already low elevation, um, and the drainage system doesn't have uh, a chance to, to uh, use the storm drain system because seawater has flooded into the mm-hmm. storm drains, and the groundwater table is high. You're talking about a, a sort of a um, uh, flooding drainage problem, so it goes into the area of engineering. How are we going to enger- uh, drainage engineer our way out of this problem? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we're talking to uh, Chip Fletcher and Br- Brad Romine from uh, University of Hawaii, and uh, they've been working uh, – 
for many years on the issue of uh, sea level rise and, and, and doing a lot of uh, interesting research. And if you have a comment or question, feel free to give us a call. Number here is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one 941 3689 want to welcome Jock from Mililani to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I just was kicking a, a thought that I lived on Keiki Beach, which is just north of... Um, of um, is it Sharks Cove uh-huh. for about four years, and every year we'd lose about twenty feet of sand from top to bottom in about a hundred yards, and it would just all disappear, and it always came back. And okay, and uh, it would come back what over what kind of a period of time? Well, it would come back in the spring and summer. Oh, okay. I was just wondering if they, you know, they'd studied that beach and if there are any others like it because it was, you know. A very natural process, and yeah. I was very surprised. Brad, uh, question, what do you have uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, we, we have studied that beach um, along with our studies of, of all the beaches around um, Oahu, Kauai, and Maui. And, um, yeah, that, that area, the North Shore Beach on Oahu, stands out as one of the most variable beaches that we see. It's it's That's pretty dramatic. I mean, Dramatic feet. seasonal variability. It's due in large part to the large North Pacific swell we get in the winter, mm-hmm. mobilizing the sand either along the shore probably also offshore to a certain degree. And then as that uh, winter swell subsides and the trade wind waves kick back in, um, it tends to bring that sand back to the shore. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, it's another type of coastal hazard, we, erosion hazard we face in Hawaii. We have the long-term erosion, which is a chronic trend that's occurring over decades or a century. This is a seasonal hazard where the beach is narrowed seasonally and expose homes um, temporary in, in the winter temporarily to um, large waves and flooding and more erosion that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, from the policy front, I mean, I am kind of curious what the scientific view is, although you can see certainly the economic reason for beach replenishment exercises, for example, in Waikiki, where if you're talking about seasonal changes, that certainly makes sense. But if you're talking about a long-term trend, how long is that sustainable um, or is that making things worse by putting sediment where it wouldn't naturally be because you're trying to keep a beach there, for example? Um, usually, placing sand on a beach is usually approached as a, as a restoration. You're, you're putting sand back where sand was previously. You're not building new beaches in most cases that, w- that we have been um, practiced recently. Um, um, what was the second part of the uh, question? It's, it's also, uh, you can consider it as environmental maintenance. For instance, we pave repave our roads, we repaint our houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, we have a beach at Waikiki that is, uh, you know, ex- economically extremely valuable. And the benefit to cost ratio really does support spending millions of dollars restoring that beach. Uh, prior to the beach restoration that took place last year, um, at high tide, that beach was gone. The Royal mm-hmm. Hawaiian, uh, we call it the Royal Hawaiian um, Beach, big pieces of that beach were unusable. Um, now it's been widened and uh, it's more usable by the public, and so uh, it's it's totally um, justified in the sense that uh, the economic numbers add up to um, to maintaining that that uh, that benefit. Now, now, Chip, you know you were talking about the the sea level rise and the impact on the groundwater, especially like in places like uh, Mapunapuna. I think there was a video where I was watching about your report in two thousand eight. Uh, at the, um, um, I guess it was like a coastal summit, uh, and you, I think you said something about there was like hammerhead sharks swimming in the water. That's what I've heard. That uh, in fact, I've seen um, video of it. That at Mapunapuna, 
baby hammerhead shark, sharks mm-hmm. uh, would come up the storm drain system mm-hmm. and swim around in the uh, saltwater pools that form there at high tide. Now, I'm curious, uh, with, you know, that occurrence, I mean, is this impacting any of the uh, sort of economic decisions in, in terms of real estate, building, and, you know, infrastructure in areas like Mapunapuna? How, how is this... How are developers taking this into consideration uh, when developing in that area? Well, nobody wants to buy a house with a hammerhead shark in front of it. So <laughs> That's I think a good it point. has had an economic impact in mm-hmm. that sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just joking. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know uh, what has happened in terms of real estate values there. Uh, it's an industrial area. Um, but I can tell you that the city uh, managed to uh, carve out a solution. They actually put a boot, a rubber boot, on the seaward end of the uh, storm drain system, which um, is very narrow and allows rain water to drain out, but uh, slows down tremendously the amount of seawater that can go in. And by the time the high tide switches over to low tide, mm-hmm. uh, there's not enough uh, time for seawater to flow into the storm drain system. So the flooding problem has been largely mitigated mm-hmm. uh, as far as the saltwater flooding problem. Now, Brad, um, we, we in Hawaii are fortunate to have beautiful high mountain ranges and and uh, a fair amount of land left. But I know that one of the things that we hear about and certainly is perhaps closer to home here in Hawaii is South Pacific Islands that have barely three, you know, a dozen feet of elevation that could perhaps cease to exist uh, as a result of sea level rise. Does that factor into um, your presentations? Um, yeah, it's not. I haven't studied. You're talking about atoll islands, sure. low-lying <laughs> sandy islands, mm-hmm. and yeah, they they face a major threat um, over this century um, of, of not only land loss, um, but maybe more uh, immediately loss of freshwater resources on the islands. There's there's often a very thin freshwater lens um, underneath the sand surface of the island, which the uh, local inhabitants are dependent on, and um, it does it doesn't take much to flood that and contaminate it with salt water. So there's there's a number of threats for these these islands. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to welcome Dan, uh, who's calling in from Hawaii Kai to Bite Marsh Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. My my question is about um, about beach nourishment on Oahu. Like, do we have enough sand resources to continue to feed the the beaches to keep up with sea level rise over the next uh, fifty to hundred years? Oh, that's Excellent a good question. question. I, although I think Chips uh, ch- 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 have an answer. <laughs> Who wants to uh, take this one? Uh, I'll take it. Um, okay. It's a very, very good question. It's a very relevant question. And um, my experience is that uh, it's actually the amount of sand resources that we have are um, very limited. The sand that you want to put on a beach uh, has to have certain high-quality characteristics. And finding sand like that that is the right grain size and doesn't have any silt in it and that resists compaction um, finding sand like that is extremely difficult, especially in the case of Waikiki. Um, we didn't want to put sand there from outside the immediate marine system because over the past century, there's been a lot of sand put into Waikiki Beach. And some people feel uh, that the excess of sand that's been put in there has moved offshore and has changed the characteristics of the breaking waves. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the requests from the from the community that uses Waikiki was that the nourishment only use sand that is located in the Waikiki marine system. That greatly limits the uh, options in terms of finding sand. Out on the reef, there are lots of sand fields, but it turns out that most of them are extremely thin. They're only on the order of a foot or two uh, in thickness. Finding a, a high-quality, uh, thick um, deposit of sand 
is a very difficult thing. It's expensive. There are a few of them around. Uh, there have been one or two high-quality uh, sand deposits located around Oahu and one or two around Maui. But uh, it's a good question and one that's worth one that's worth thinking about. The other aspect of your question is, is there enough sand to keep nourishing beaches throughout the century? Uh, it's hard enough to find sand to nourish beaches right now. Mm-hmm. And as sea level rise accelerates and becomes a real serious problem here, uh, it's hard to see that there's going to be beach nourishment as uh, uh, as important a tool as we would like it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I recall, I think that we used to, we had at one point imported sand, but that had a lot of problems with it, not including environmental and in terms of organisms and such. So, But that is certainly an excellent question. Um, Brad, I mean, it, again, we love covering science here in Bite Marks Cafe. It seems that we do cover uh, some of the great research coming out of UH fairly regularly. I'm curious if, there's a, if, there, if you could give us a preview or, like, what is the next area of focus or what's the next, uh, you know, specific area in terms of coastal erosion that you'd be studying? Uh, I'm sure Chip will expand on this some more um, as dean of SOAS, but... Uh, <laughs> The, the next step, we, we really have a good understanding, I think, of how our beaches have changed over, you know, the past. The next step is moving into the future, trying to model and better understand how they'll change in the future from that information. And um, we know that um, we, we've identified the areas that are eroding, for example, from our beaches, and we expect those areas, the erosion to increase in those areas and the areas of erosion to expand. So trying to figure out how that'll develop is, is an important next step. Um, Chip's doing a lot of work trying to model how sea level will flood um, topography using digital elevation models. And, and, um, and so that's, you may want to expand on that a little bit, too. Uh, actually, our work has recently been posted online through the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, mm-hmm. NOAA. Saw that page. Yeah, we'll put it up on our show notes. And um, you, you can Google NOAA Sea Level Viewer. And um, this is a website that allows you to uh, raise sea level on an air photo. You, what you'll see is an air photo. And you can flood the air photo with uh, anywhere from one to six feet of sea level rise at one foot increments. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a national resource. Hawaii was, has recently gone online. And you can see what sea level rise looks like at, say, four feet of sea level rise throughout Waikiki or Kailua or the North Shore. Now, Chip, uh, in the last 30 seconds, can you tell us how things are going with your communicating this, messaging this to some of our legislators and, and uh, council people? Well, one of the things that we really benefit from in, in Hawaii is that um, the vast majority of our elected officials, um, they, they get the idea. They accept the science behind climate change. They see that the uh, scientific community has proven the case of climate change, and they're embracing the problem of adapting to climate change. Climate change is going to affect us in a number of ways, from our water resources to sea level rise. And um, there's a lot of thinking going on about how best to develop policies in this regard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the latest step was to pass Act uh, 286, which is adding a climate adaptation requirement to the state planning law. Mm, sounds good. So we'll definitely put that up on our show notes. Chip Fletcher is the Dean? Associate Dean. Associate Dean. Well, I was going to make you president but, uh, <laughs> uh, of the Department of Geology and Geophysics in the School of Ocean, Earth, Science, and Technology. And Brad Romine is the Coastal Management Specialist with the University of Hawaii Sea Grant College Program. I want to thank you both for joining us. Thank you. It was Thanks. great. Thanks for having us. Yep. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll get an update from the Office of Information Management and Technology on the state's IT transformation. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on Bite Marks 
bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. We leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called The Joy Formidable and a song called Austere. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bite Marks Cafe.